0: Welcome to Come Follow Me Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter by chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse by verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of Scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. 2 Nephi chapter 33 With all of its doctrinal richness, and the complexity and intricacy of multiple authorship, we come to the end of Nephi's record, and this chapter really serves as an endpoint, or a capstone to Nephi's writings. In the two previous chapters, Nephi spoke with great clarity regarding the doctrine of Christ. In chapter 31, he introduced the term and the concept, focusing most specifically on the gate. In chapter 32, he discussed in more specific terms, the path that we must follow with a steadfastness in Christ, which is a phrase that came in verse 31. And then in verse 33, it is almost as though Nephi is focusing on the third component of the doctrine of Christ as he introduced it, which is the destination. And he will tell us how it is that we will stand before the bar of God and be judged. At this point in the record, we can see really, that Nephi has discharged his own duty in writing the record. And he's told us a great deal about its construction, how it is that he has chosen to include some things and omit others. And he's told us about his motives for writing what he has. But now in this final chapter, chapter 33, it is as though the onus rests upon us as future readers of this record. We are those that have received that record as part of the marvelous work and wonder that's described in 2 Nephi chapter 27. And now, because this book has come forward in the latter days, we really have the most compelling evidence that the Book of Mormon is true of all, which is, as President Gordon B. Hinckley once said, we can hold it in our hands. Now, as the book has been written through the spirit of inspiration, and through the power of the Holy Ghost, it becomes our job, as Nephi will explain in verse 2, to reciprocate that and to receive this word by the power of the Holy Ghost. Then Nephi will up the ante as he moves farther into this chapter, telling all potential readers, his own people, the Jews, the Gentiles, and even the ends of the earth, that the way we judge this record which does indeed contain the words of christ will determine the way in which we are ultimately judged by the word or in other words even the lord jesus christ and really this brings us to a point of reckoning i think and i believe that this is nephi's intent in writing it this way we really have to come to terms with whether what nephi has written is true because if it is the implications most certainly follow, and we'll come back to that at the end of this audio segment. As we look at the structure of this chapter, we find that in the first two verses, Nephi is really showing us a pattern that is similar to what we find in Doctrine and Covenants section 50, and we'll come back to that. But in the first two verses, he discusses the way in which reciprocity is needed, that even though it has been written in the way that it has, we must receive it by the Spirit Nephi then speaks regarding his own record in verse 3 and continues this line of thinking through the next several verses, telling us that he has written what he has written. Then he clarifies his motives in verse 3. He says that his words speaketh harshly against sin according to the plainness of truth in verse 5. In verses 7 through 9, he discusses four categories of future readers, the Jews, His own people, the Gentiles, and the ends of the earth. Then Nephi makes it clear in verses 10 through 13 that these words that he has written are indeed the words of Christ. It's something that he clearly wants us to think carefully about, and he's teaching a doctrine here that we find in other scriptures. For example, in the 38th verse of Doctrine and Covenants, section 1 that says, whether by mine own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same. Then Nephi takes a tone of warning in verse 14. I think he wants to make it clear here that he's not simply speaking in platitudes, that his record to this point has been more than that. It's at this point that he puts us in a position where we really must decide whether his writings are true, and if they are true— then that impels us really to action. He then reminds us in the final verse of his record that our disposition towards his writings will determine how we are judged, as it says in verse 15, when it is brought against us at the judgment bar. Moving back to verse 1, And now I, Nephi, cannot write all the things which were taught among my people, Neither am I mighty in writing like unto speaking. For when a man speaketh by the power of the Holy Ghost, the power of the Holy Ghost carrieth it unto the hearts of the children of men. We can notice several things from this verse, and one is that Nephi's language is similar to Moroni's in Ether chapter 12, when Moroni said this, And I said unto him, Lord, the Gentiles will mock at these things because of our weakness in writing. For Lord, thou hast made us mighty in word by faith, but thou hast not made us mighty in writing, for thou hast made all this people that they could speak much because of the Holy Ghost which thou hast given them. They're both discussing a similar concept. At the end of this chapter, another striking similarity can be drawn between Nephi and Moroni. In other words, the first author of the Book of Mormon and the final author of the Book of Mormon because both of them discuss standing before the bar of God and being judged according to the way that we have treated his word. In Moroni's discussion of the weakness of the written word versus the power of the spoken word, the Lord will go on to explain that weak things can be made strong. It becomes clear in verse 2 of this chapter that the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, as he is described in verse 1, is the key to making these words come alive so that they will still be carried unto the hearts of the children of men in their written form, and that those who read them will give them place, as verse 2 says, and and not esteem them as things of naught. This reflects a beautiful doctrine that is taught in section 50 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Verses 17-22 through explain that there is a need for a preacher who preaches by the power of the Spirit, but that also there is a spiritual reciprocity that is needed here, that the receiver too must receive these things by the Holy Ghost. That passage reads as follows, Verily I say unto you, he that is ordained of me, and sent forth to preach the word of truth by the Comforter, in the Spirit of truth, doth he preach it by the Spirit of truth, Or some other way? And if it be by some other way, it is not of God. And again, he that receiveth the word of truth, doth he receive it by the Spirit of truth or by some other way? If it be some other way, it is not of God. Therefore why is it that ye cannot understand and know that he that receiveth the word by the Spirit of truth receive it as it is preached by the Spirit of truth? Wherefore he that preacheth and he that receiveth understand one another, and both are edified, and rejoice together. In verse 2, then, Nephi teaches this concept by phrasing it in the negative. He says, But behold, there are many that harden their hearts against the Holy Spirit, that it hath no place in them. Wherefore they cast many things away which are written, and esteem them as things of naught. So in other words, to use the language of section 50, these are they who have not received by the Spirit. And receiving by the Spirit is precisely what it is that Nephi taught us to do at the very beginning of his record. He approached the Lord himself, as it says in 1 Nephi chapter 2, verse 16, and he had great desires to know the mysteries of God. Wherefore, I did cry unto the Lord, and behold, he did visit me, and did soften my heart, that I did believe all the things which had been spoken by my Father." wherefore I did not rebel against him like unto my brothers. This seems to be a major theme in Nephi's writings, and he's bringing it to a close here in this chapter. It also seems to be tied to what plain means to him, and that's something that we've discussed recently, and we'll have a chance to come back to that in this chapter. I want to go to some commentary for a moment on this phrase in verse 1 that says that the Holy Ghost carrieth it, Unto the hearts of the children of men. Elder David A. Bednar taught this in 2006 at an event called An Evening with Elder David A. Bednar. Nephi teaches us when a man speaketh by the power of the Holy Ghost, the power of the Holy Ghost carrieth the message unto the hearts of the children of men. Please notice how the power of the Spirit carries the message unto, but not necessarily into, the heart. A teacher can explain, demonstrate, persuade, and testify and do so with great spiritual power and effectiveness. Ultimately, however, the content of a message and the witness of the Holy Ghost penetrate into the heart only if a receiver allows them to enter. Now moving to verse 3, something that truly reveals the greatness of Nephi's heart. But I, Nephi, have written what I have written, which is a, a curious phrase with some redundancy in it. I have written what I have written, and I esteem it as of great worth, and especially unto my people, For I pray continually for them by day, and mine eyes water my pillow by night because of them, and I cry unto my God in faith, and I know that he will hear my cry. There are certainly other examples of a prophet's Christ-like love for those whom he serves, but this expression I think is chief among them. We have many recent examples of President Monson, President Hinckley, And now President Nelson facing the camera at the end of General Conference and telling us directly, I love you. Their depth of feeling in these moments is undoubtedly sincere and is undoubtedly similar to the feelings that are coming through here from Nephi that we read in this verse. Now verse 4, and I know that the Lord God will consecrate my prayers for the gain of my people, and the words which I have written in weakness will be made strong unto them. So there's that statement that's similar to Moroni's. He knows that his weakness in this thing will be made strong. How? Well, that is through the Holy Ghost, which, as he has described earlier, will carry it unto the hearts of the children of men. Then he continues, For it, meaning my words, the ones which will come to you as a voice from the dust, persuadeth them to do good. It maketh known unto them of their fathers, and it speaketh of Jesus, and persuadeth them to believe in him, and to endure to the end, which is life eternal." Those last three statements of the verse can be seen as a very terse summary of the entire doctrine of Christ. Believing in Him can imply faith in Jesus Christ and repentance and being baptized and receiving the Holy Ghost. The gate, in other words, and then to endure to the end implies what it is that is required to travel the path that the gate opens to, the path of probation that is marked by these covenants and by clinging to the word and by a steadfastness in Christ. And then the final phrase in the verse, which is life eternal, which is the destination of this doctrine of Christ. Now moving to verse 5, where in verse 4 we learn that the word persuadeth them to do good. In verse 5, "...and it speaketh harshly against sin." according to the plainness of the truth. Wherefore, no man will be angry at the words which I have written, save he shall be of the spirit of the devil. So, we've had other opportunity to discuss this concept, but we see again that your response to the word will determine your destiny. It's similar, I think, to the parable of the sower, where we really want to think about what kind of ground we are so that when the word falls on us, will it take root and grow. We've spoken previously about how it could be that such beautiful writings and such beautiful doctrines could elicit anger in the hearts of those who are not following the commandments. Monte Nyman said this One example to consider is that many reject the Book of Mormon because it testifies against their lifestyles. As Nephi told Laman and Lemuel when they complained that he spoke hard things to them, the guilty taketh the truth to be hard, for it cutteth them to the very center. Then Nephi summarizes with this memorable statement in verse 6, I glory in plainness, I glory in truth, I glory in my Jesus, for he hath redeemed my soul from hell. This I glory statement is somewhat reminiscent of my soul delighteth in. But here he says, I glory. And again, that's in plainness, which we've discussed, and we'll come back to some commentary on that. Truth jesus it's those three things the idea of plainness it can be seen perhaps as language that is simplified so that it can be easier to understand but remember again that nephi is one who gave us a great deal of isaiah and in chapter 25 he talked about how much he valued plainness but the context for that was in interpreting isaiah Perhaps then, plainness is not language simplified as much as it is language transcended. It's getting to an understanding through the Spirit as things as they really are, which is a phrase that Jacob will use in another few chapters in Jacob chapter 4, verse 13. Then I think it is that things will appear plain. It's worth pondering the meaning of the word appear for a moment and uh, the phrase in the scriptures that says, uh, when he shall appear, we shall be like him. Perhaps he can appear to us in plainness because of the way that we have approached his word. It seems that all prophetic writers have had the task of seeing things that are hard to describe with language, and so they lament the limitations of language. When We have Nephi talking about writing versus speaking and how it is that he values plainness. And throughout this record, it's clear that he has seen things and felt things that are hard to transmit through that medium, and that he hopes so much that that we can come to an understanding of what it is that he has written. We have this interesting statement from Brigham Young when he talked about how Joseph Smith handled this task. He said, Joseph Smith took heaven, figuratively speaking, and brought it down to earth. And he took the earth, brought it up, and opened up in plainness and simplicity the things of God. The excellency of the glory of the character of Brother Joseph Smith was that he could reduce heavenly things to the understanding of the finite. When he preached to the people, revealed the things of God, the will of God, the plan of salvation, the purposes of Jehovah, the relation in which we stand to him and all the heavenly beings, he reduced his teachings to the capacity of every man, woman, and child making them as plain as a well-defined pathway. This should have convinced every person that ever heard of him, of his divine authority and power, for no man was able to teach as he could, and no person can reveal the things of God but by the revelations of Jesus Christ. That's out of the Brigham Young manual. Then in the next few verses, Nephi broadens the scope, talking about his uh, really future readers First in verse 7 he says, I have charity for my people and great faith in Christ that I shall meet many souls spotless at his judgment seat. That's a beautiful statement. And then he moves on in verse 8. I have charity for the Jew. I say Jew because I mean them from whence I came. This is also instructive to us because this is a verse that tells us very clearly that Nephi saw himself as a Jew, in the sense that he geographically came from the southern kingdom of Judah. But we have learned elsewhere that he and his family are most certainly Josephites. We have this uh, helpful statement from E. Richardson in a work called What is a Jew? Nephi was not suggesting that he was a blood descendant of Judah, but that he was from the country of Judah, for it is clearly stated in the Book of Mormon that Lehi's family was of the tribe of Manasseh, Even in Lehi's time, a Jew could be defined variously, progeny of Judah, citizen of the Jewish state, and believer in the Jewish religion. So that would be a generic definition if you're the progeny of Judah. It would be a political definition if you are a citizen of the Jewish state, and it would be a covenant definition if you were of the Jewish religion, and that's what made you a Jew. Then, as now, to many, Israel is a people. To others, it is a place or state, and to still others, it is an idea, concept, or ideal. Now in verse 9, Nephi moves to a new group of readers. I also have charity for the Gentiles. But behold, for none of these can I hope, except they shall be reconciled unto Christ, and enter into the narrow gate and walk in the straight path which leads to life, and continue in the path until the end of the day of probation." So he's he's restating here in very succinct terms, once again, the doctrine of Christ, the gate, the path, the path of probation, and the destination. He also makes it clear here in verse 9 that this proposition is lineage notwithstanding because he says, for none of these can I hope. In other words, the groups that he's just mentioned, his own people, the Jews, or the Gentiles. And in verse 10, he'll add another group, which is all ye ends of the earth. But for all of these groups, again, Nephi says in verse 9, for none of these can I hope, except they shall be reconciled unto Christ. So he seems to be making it clear here that the doctrine of Christ has to do with your willingness to enter into that narrow gate. In this verse, we get the final summary uh, or the final expression of the doctrine of Christ, Uh, because of that, we can talk for a moment about the meaning of a straight path, which we'll do in just a moment. One thing I would like to point out is that it seems in a way that the doctrine of Christ, as Nephi has laid it out, is something like the story of two gates. He's told us very specifically what this first narrow gate is. It's something that does not open in to our final destination, the eternal city, the dwelling place of God, but instead opens up to a path which we must then walk upon which we are tested. It's, a, it's the day of probation, as he says in verse 9. It's a path that we have to walk with steadfastness in Christ. And we've learned from other scripture, especially Lehi's vision, that there's a high propensity for those who walk the path to leave it They really must cling to the Word. The Savior will say in Matthew 24 that even the very elect will be deceived. It's only those who treasure up the Word that will survive. And so those are the conditions that surround this path. As we get to its end, we come to the destination. That destination, as John taught us in the book of Revelation, is bounded by another gate. This gate may be thought of as the thing which opens to us when we approach the Lord at his judgment bar, and if we are deemed worthy to enter into his rest and to become heirs of all that he has, uh, joint heirs with Christ, then we'll have the opportunity to enter this gate. This gate in Revelation chapter 21 is described in the plural Uh, It's described as twelve gates. In verse 21, And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was one of pearl. Gates of pearl or pearly gates is a colloquialism for us in broader Christianity, and we even sing of it uh, in the hymn Beautiful Zion. We read elsewhere in Scripture that when we stand to be judged before God, that his 12 apostles will play a role in that judgment. So it's curious here that as we associate this final gate with the judgment bar, that there would be 12, and perhaps there's a relationship there. In any event, I think this is something beautiful to ponder. And this entire doctrine of Christ, this gate that we first enter, and this pathway that we follow, and... This ultimate destination that we attain to at the end of the day of probation, as Nephi says in verse 9, all of it is marked by covenants with God, and that's what allows us to progress through this. Max Caldwell, in an article called The Path That Leads to Christ, discusses what the straight path could mean in this passage. He says, in the Book of Mormon, Nephi is the primary user of the word path. In its singular form, the word appears in only 13 verses, and 11 of those were written by Nephi. In one important instance, he refers to the Savior and the path in the same sentence. It is evident that any hope we might have for a better world here, and for eternal life with our families in the presence of God hereafter, is dependent upon our entering and steadfastly remaining in the path that leads to Christ. A verbal declaration of discipleship, without accompanying action, is simply an insufficient and unacceptable offering the redemption that was so dearly bought with his blood is not for those who merely give lip service to him in the pages of the book of mormon we learn of the savior's saving mission his gospel and read his repeated invitations to come unto him as well as his instructions on how to do that which constitute his word and his doctrine in nephi's closing sermon He describes the path as a symbolic representation of applying or living the doctrine of Christ. After teaching that we should enter through the gate of repentance and baptism, he says, And then are ye in this straight and narrow path which leads to eternal life. After ye have gotten into this straight and narrow path, I would ask if all is done. Behold, I say unto you, Nay, for ye have not come thus far, save it were by the word of Christ with unshaken faith in him relying wholly upon the merits of him who is mighty to save. This is coming out of 2 Nephi chapter 31, verses 18-21, through 21, by the way. Wherefore ye must press forward with a steadfastness in Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope, and the love of God and of all men. Wherefore, if ye shall press forward, feasting upon the word of Christ and endure to the end, ye shall have eternal life, and now behold this is the doctrine of Christ. A study of the Book of Mormon reveals that there are two vital parts or dimensions of the journey along the path leading to Christ. We must be aware of both what we must do and what we must be. And again, that is from C. Max Caldwell, The Path That Leads to Christ. Now as we move to verses 10 and 11, Nephi will leave no doubt in the reader's mind that he is equating his words with the words of Christ. He does this in a very memorable way. So, verse 10 And now, my beloved brethren, and also Jew, and all ye ends of the earth, hearken unto these words, and believe in Christ. And if ye believe not in these words, believe in Christ. And if ye shall believe in Christ, ye will believe in these words, for they are the words of Christ, and he hath given them unto me, and they teach all men that they should do good. Now, Nephi continues in verse 11. And if they are not the words of Christ, judge ye. For Christ will show unto you with power and great glory that they are his words at the last day. And you and I shall stand face to face before his bar, and ye shall know that I have been commanded of him to write these things, notwithstanding my weakness. There's a great deal to unpack in these two verses, so we'll talk about them for a few minutes. The first might be, moving backwards to notice Nephi's mention of his weakness, which again is similar language to Moroni. We can also notice the inevitability of this. Nephi is saying, you can regard my words how you will, but there is an inevitable moment when we will stand uh, face to face before his bar. It's quite remarkable, I think, to read a book where the author is telling you that you will meet him. And be accountable to him for what you did with what he wrote to you. That doesn't happen with Charles Dickens. It should be very thought provoking to us and to impel us to action. When Nephi says in verse 11, And if they are not the words of Christ, judge ye, it's as though he's saying, If they aren't true, then go ahead and move on. But if they are true, Do consider what that means. It really changes everything. In fact, it should steer your life from this point forward if you know that they are true. This is because of the teachings that Nephi's words contain that this would need to steer our lives. But if they are true, we also want to really think about the sacrifice of the writers who have brought this word to us, all of these multiple writers and record keepers. Moving back at this point to verse 10, where Nephi uses the phrase, these words, hearken unto these words, James E. Faust once said, What then is the Book of Mormon? It is confirming evidence of the birth, life, and crucifixion of Jesus, and of his work as the Messiah and the Redeemer. McConkie and Millet said, The Book of Mormon is the most Christ-centered spiritual record ever published. Every doctrine within its covers is but an appendage to its central theme, the testimony that Jesus is the Christ. All who believe in Christ will believe the words of this book. One cannot truly believe in the Bible and at the same time not believe in the Book of Mormon. There is not that person on the face of the earth, Brigham Young said, who has had the privilege of learning the gospel of Jesus Christ from these two books, the Bible and the Book of Mormon, that can say that one is true. And the other is false. No Latter day Saint, no man or woman, can say the Book of Mormon is true, and at the same time say that the Bible is untrue. If one be true, both are true, and if one be false, both are false. Then, as Millet and McConkie continue, to believe the words of one is to believe the words of both. Mormon made this same point in Mormon chapter 7, verse 9 For behold, this is written for the intent that ye may believe that. And if you believe that, you will believe this also. And if you believe this, you will know concerning your fathers and also the marvelous works which were wrought by the power of God among them. And with that and this, Mormon is indeed referring to the record of the Gentiles as well as the record of the Jews, meaning the Book of Mormon and the Bible. This phrase in verse 11, And if they are not the words of Christ, judge ye, is, I think, central to this chapter where, as I mentioned earlier, the onus turns and rests on us as readers. Previously, Nephi has borne the burden of how the book is compiled, and he has explained why he has done what he has done as he's compiled it. But now, in this chapter, the onus really rests upon us. And in verse 2, we find that we need to receive it by the power of the Holy Ghost. And in verse 11, we find that we must judge for ourselves whether these are or not the words of Christ. President Ezra Taft Benson said this in a conference report in April of 1975. Our main task is to declare the gospel and do it effectively. We are not obligated to answer every objection. Every man eventually is backed up to the wall of faith, and there he must make his stand. And if they are not the words of Christ, judge ye, said Nephi, for Christ will show unto you with power and great glory that they are his words at the last day. And you and I shall stand face to face before his bar, and ye shall know that I have been commanded of him to write these things. Every man must judge for himself, knowing God will hold him accountable. Elder Robert E. Wells once said this about the Book of Mormon, Like Joseph Smith, the Book of Mormon is a divine instrument to draw the reader closer to Christ it has withstood every conceivable test by both skeptical and sincere minds it is not on trial we are the ones on trial being tested by our acceptance or rejection of its truths teachings commandments and declarations and so here's where nephi pivots after introducing the idea that we should judge the word now we discover that he will appear before we will appear before the bar of god and it will be a means for our own judgment. So as Nephi continues in verse 12, And I pray the Father in the name of Christ that many of us, if not all, may be saved in his kingdom at that great and last day. And now, my beloved brethren, all those who are of the house of Israel, and all ye ends of the earth, I speak unto you as the voice of one crying from the dust, Farewell until that great day shall come. It couldn't be any more clear, I think, in this verse, in verse 13, that Nephi is addressing the future reader, and that he has us in mind, and that he is speaking to us as the voice of one crying from the dust. It's a very poetic and beautiful expression. Then the tone turns to a tone of warning in verse 14, and you that will not partake of the goodness of God, and respect the words of the Jews, so the Bible, respecting the Bible, And also my words, and the words which shall proceed forth out of the mouth of the Lamb of God. So three different categories of words there. Behold, I bid you an everlasting farewell, for these words shall condemn you at the last day. So now returning to the idea of judgment. We will be judged by the word, which is another name title of Christ, according to the way in which we judged the word. President Ezra Taft Benson once said this, Do eternal consequences rest upon our response to this book? Yes. Either to our blessing or our condemnation. Every Latter-day Saint should make the study of this book a lifetime pursuit. Otherwise he is placing his soul in jeopardy and neglecting that which could give spiritual and intellectual unity to his whole life. There is a difference between a convert who is built on the rock of the Christ through the Book of Mormon and stays hold of that rod, and one who is not. Marion G. Romney once said, For me there could be no more impelling reason for reading the Book of Mormon than this statement of the Lord, that we shall be judged by what is written in it. And so Nephi concludes his final verse to us, in verse 15, For what I seal on earth shall be brought against you at the judgment bar. For thus hath the Lord commanded me, and I must obey. Amen. Moroni says this at the end of his record, in Moroni chapter 10, verse 27. And I exhort you to remember these things, for the time speedily cometh, that ye shall know that I lie not. For ye shall see me at the bar of God. And the Lord God will say unto you, Did I not declare my words unto you, which were written by this man, like as one crying from the dead? Yea, even as one speaking out of the dust. It's a striking similarity in language between the first Book of Mormon author and the very last. Nephi's brother Jacob says something similar. As he comes to the end of his sixth chapter record, he says, Finally, I bid you farewell until I shall meet you before the pleasing bar of God, which bar striketh the wicked with awful dread and fear. So that's the tone that these writers take at the end of their record, and it's most certainly the tone that Nephi takes here. And we we might wonder why. One possible reason, I think, is that Nephi is bringing us to a point where we really must consider whether what he has written is true or not. Because as he says, judge ye. And if it's not true, that's one thing. Lots has been written that isn't true. But if it is true... It changes everything. I think it's somewhat similar to reading the four Gospels about the life of Christ. There's a point at which I think as readers we have to say, is this true? Is this really, really true? Because if it is, then it suggests several things. For one thing, it suggests that this Jesus of Nazareth, who performed such great miracles rose from the dead and is is therefore no longer buried in the earth as any other historical figure. If that's the case, then he truly was the Son of God and has risen and is the Son of God to this day, and as such has power to execute on his regard for humankind, where he wants to Reach out and save them with his powerful arm, for he wants to gather them as a hen gathers her chickens. We really have to decide if that's true. If it's not, we can dismiss it. But if it is, it impels us to action. It really requires us to be his follower. There's not a lot of middle ground, it seems. Nephi seems to be doing something very similar to us. He's almost putting us in a corner. Saying, you've read my record now, but now I'm telling you, you really must come to terms with whether it's true or not. And if it is, then I'm telling you to follow the Savior, enter the gate, and walk the path with fidelity, and make it to the final destination of eternal life. In other words, follow the doctrine of Christ. Uh, President Russell M. Nelson once taught this in an article called Nephi, son of Lehi, Nephi was a multifaceted genius. Endowed with great physical stature, he was a prophet, teacher, ruler, colonizer, builder, craftsman, scholar, writer, poet, military leader, and father of nations. Nephi had a sincere desire to know the mysteries of God. He became a special witness and a trusted prophet of the Lord. Appropriately, his final testimony closed with the words that could be known as his signature. I must obey. Few have spoken so profoundly in behalf of one generation to another. Indeed, Nephi's life and mission were destined to bless us and all people of our day. So I would submit that that's what Nephi is bringing us to. He's bringing us to the conclusion that we have to decide whether his writings are true and whether they are the writings or the words of Christ himself. And if they are, then that is his parting phrase to us, I must obey and therefore must we too well that brings us to the end of this marvelous book the book of 2nd Nephi and 2nd Nephi chapter 33 thank you for listening to come follow me deep dive I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I of course am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives. And most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of his word. So thank you for listening.